0: Now they were watching television and Otto should have been watching as well with them but he couldn't and I'll tell you why. Uh, First of all here's their television set. The thing is it was only a very old television set and it worked rather badly. Sometimes it looked as though it was snowing and sometimes it made the people all wobbly
1: and sometimes it did that thing where the feet come in the top and the man's head appears at the bottom. In fact, there was only one way in which they could make it work properly, and that was Hello, I'm Andrew.
2: Hello, I'm Lisa.
1: Welcome to episode 49 of
2: Round the Archives.
1: Lots to fit in yes. today. So Bumper we, issue. We won't hang about too long. New. But we ought to plug some of the things we've been doing since yes. we last spoke. Yes, We've released more in conversations. We haven't have, we? yes. We've done a fair bit for the Shy Life podcast. We have. And we've made our return appearance on Looks Unfamiliar. We have indeed. Tim Worthington's yes. wonderful show. Mm-hmm. So check that out as well. Yes. But to kick off, Martin Holmes tells us a story of Jackanory.
3: Jackanory, Jackanory.
0: Jackanory.
3: Hello. Once upon a time the BBC, a television company that you may have heard of, created a series that they called Jackanory. This involved celebrities or actors or personalities of the day reading stories to little boys and girls across the nation so they could actually hear the books that they might like. And this show lasted For more than 30 years, 30 years on television, and even came back a bit later, or it wasn't as good. Basically, the reader would read a story, sometimes over five nights, but sometimes different stories on the five nights, and they would go from Monday to Friday, and the episodes would be about 15 minutes long, and the the stories would be illustrated, and at the beginning of the programme there was a very familiar theme tune, and There was a kaleidoscope effect using an ice image that had something to do with the programme. This programme lasted for 31 years and there were over three and a half thousand episodes, often with some of the finest performers of their generation. And over two thousand of those are now missing. They've been thrown away. And let's face it, some of us believe you should never throw anything away. One little boy, a very long time ago, used to sit and watch Jackanory, and every so often there was a gentleman who appeared on Jackanory called Mr Quentin Blake. Now, some of his episodes have actually managed to survive, but Mr Quentin Blake was an artist, and he used to illustrate children's stories, and he used to write children's stories. But the stories he would tell on Jackanory involved him walking along a wall of paper and using a black marker pen to draw the stories as he went along and I found that an absolute miracle when I was a little boy and that's kind of possibly why I grew up to be an artist myself. He would scribble the stories about a character called Lester who was a kind of dinosaur and his friend Otto and I couldn't remember The other character who often featured in it, but when I watched an episode because Andrew and Lisa sent me one, it was a character called Flappy Eared Laura. So I became very interested in drawing, because I thought this was a miracle. He would literally draw the story as the programme went along, and this seemed miraculous. And the adventures that Lester and his friends had were amazing to me as a small boy. Now the thing about Jack and Ori was it was presented by lots and lots of people that you will have heard of, including Denham Elliott and Judy Dench and Martin Jarvis and Ian McKellen and Paul McGann and Earl Cameron and Peter Davison and Angus Deaton and Jan Francis and Molly Sugden and Elaine Stritch and Margaret Rutherford and Peter Sellers and Miranda Richardson and Trevor Martin and George Mellie and Spike Milligan and Richard Bryars and Kathy Burke and Ed Bishop and Tom Baker and Floella Bell. Benjamin and Joss Ackland and Rupert Everett and Harry Fowler and Edward Fox and Stratford Johns and James Robertson Justice and Arthur Lowe and Joanna Lumley and Art Malick and Bob Roberts and Ted Ray and why did they throw them all away? Well they didn't throw them all away. That's lucky for us that some of them still exist but nevertheless one generation and then another generation and probably several generations were introduced to reading by listening and watching Jack and Ori every night of the week after school. And as a way of getting people to read and engage with storytelling and books, it really was a fabulous, fabulous programme. And we really, really, really would love to see more of it. Characters like Agaton Sachs, characters like Lester. The Matilda books by Roald Dahl all featured and they were all astonishingly good. There was a character called Little nose and the voice of the reader John Grant just shaped a generation. Some people were kind of alarmed by it. But Michael Palin wrote, uh, John Pertwee, Patrick Moore, Lee Montague. There were so many people and it is astonishing, really, that so few of them have survived. And I, I just, I, I think it's awful. Nevertheless, Giaconori was a fabulous, fabulous programme. And if you can, find some time to sit down and be embraced by the phenomenon that is Giaconori. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>
0: Jackanory oh, oh. Celia Johnson will be back in Jack Jackanory tomorrow at the same time with another story about Baba Now it's time for Blue Peter, 5 to 5
1: Many thanks to Martin for doing that.
0: Yes, thank you
2: Martin
1: Yeah, I was looking at the list of missing Jackanories mm-hmm. and there's some great losses there Yes. I'd really like to see the Geoffrey Belden mm-hmm. one from 1974 where he reads Wurzel Gummidge again. Yes yeah, giving you a build and gummage connection mm-hmm. 5 years before yeah you know before Horry. the one that we know about oh
2: he's the crow man
1: i'd i'd love jack and Ori to be shown on britbox or somewhere yes. like that yeah like as
2: you get britbox then yeah. if we, <laughs> that's him another well,
1: i don't see it being too difficult because you've only got like one actor to negotiate with haven't you really? yeah but there's a
2: lot of it isn't there
1: i know yeah, but, yeah. anyway uh moving on now mm-hmm. we're going to do part 1 yes.
2: of our
4: look at crown court <laughs>
2: good afternoon Lisa good afternoon Andrew
1: and welcome to the Crancourt. Court we've done a bit of Crane Court recently we have we? yes
2: yeah. we, I we discovered uh, two of the volumes and yeah. we've we sort of had a bit of binge watch
1: yeah today and we're going to split this over a three-part article
2: yes just to make you stay to the end of the episode
1: indeed we're mm-hmm. looking at Crancourt Court volume 5 yes from network mm-hmm With the three-part story, the most expensive steak in the world, Mm -hmm. Da Costa versus McIver.
2: Yes.
1: And the blurb says, Argentinian ranger... He's a ranger, (laughs) or is he a rancher?
2: I think they do call it ranger, but yeah, he's a rancher. He's a a a ranger is something in
1: in Dungeons and Dragons.
2: Yeah, it's it's something in other things as well.
1: Argentinian. I'm going to say rancher. Okay. Senor de Costa is suing Colonel MacIver for sixty-five thousand guineas after the latter allegedly reneged on a verbal agreement to rig an auction at Fulchester Bull Sales, starring Ronald Rad Dunklin? Dunklin? (laughs) Dunklin? (laughs) <laughs> Duncan Lamont and James Copeland, written by David Fisher, directed by voitech Original transmission twenty first to twenty third November, nineteen seventy three. Mm-hmm. What do you think of this so far? Then uh,
2: this is it's one we've seen before. Yes, and I remember quite enjoying it because it's quite a light one. Yeah, there's no sort of obviously it's a civil case, not a, a criminal case. Yeah. So there's no murders or anything like that. But yes, yeah, it's, it's quite. Uh, Amusing. So,
1: Judge is William Mervyn. Yes, we have William Mervin As the Honourable Mr Justice Campbell. hmm And you've got Richard Wilson and mm-hmm. John Alkin. Yes. As, as the QCs. haven't QCs, aren't QCs you?
2: yes. Uh, John Alkin's the plaintiff's QC, because that, so that means he's the one bringing the case. Yeah. And uh, jo- Richard Wilson is the defendant.
1: Yeah, so so basically, Ronald Radd yeah. playing an Argentinian. Yeah. <laughs> Do yeah. you think he gets away with that?
2: Just about. I would point out, actually, that... Um, john alkin isn't a qc no. barry deal he's not a qc
1: No, what is he then
2: he's whatever then he's just he's a barrister yeah. but he's not a qc which means he hasn't taken the silk yeah
1: okay uh so ronald ronald Rad's in it come in his best sort of check jacket yeah it's a very he?
2: loud 70s check jacket isn't
1: yeah it? so yeah and uh he, he's got got being sued by... No, he's, no, no no he he's suing. Silly. he's that's right. He's suing mm. James Copeland. Yes, who's coming? His best whiskers. He has.
2: Yes. Yeah, I'd like to know if they're, they're real or, or false.
1: They look a bit false. They to do me. look a little bit false. They're a little bit OTT.
2: Yeah. It's it, it, it's, it's yeah.
1: Some. It's, um... I have to say, the jury in this episode, they're not that great. No, the jury's a bit disappointing. Yeah,
2: sometimes the jury, you you get one in there that's mm. sort of sta- there's, the, a a
1: woman, there's a woman. There's a woman in a in a sort of. Um, in a dress there's an oldish yep. lady she's mm-hmm. about the best one yep. but there's no there's no real sights is no, there
2: no no there's no yeah. sort of long haired
1: yeah
2: brightly coloured shirt to wearing yeah. people
1: and uh, we said it's directed by Voitech Voitech yes there's a really weird shot mm. from the back of the jury <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: across yeah. the set and I don't know whether they're just accidentally picking up the studio lighting yeah or whether it's it's an intentionally arty shot. I genuinely don't know.
2: It looked like sort of... You know, the, the cause it had a sort
1: of halo on it. Yeah, that's because you're getting the, the studio light. Yeah. yeah, and it's unusual to use that camera position.
2: Can't use that too much. You burn the, that camera lens out. Yeah,
1: and maybe they've just jacked the camera up a bit too much. Uh, but yeah, we we get the um, we get we get the sort of layout of the of the storyline, yes. don't we? So this ball sort of changed hands, didn't yes, it? And the, yes. and then it proved to be infertile. Yes,
2: it couldn't couldn't service the case. Yeah,
1: and I I love the sort of exchanges between Richard Wilson and William Mervyn yes. about the sort of biology of all yeah. this. Yeah. Richard Wilson gets to say some quite biological words. Does, for he the does. time slot. Yeah, I just he?
2: I wonder whether he, he he got the script and he was like, oh goodness, psycho. How do you say that word? <laughs> so,
1: I'm not that. I'm thinking of, of the saucy words oh, yes. that he has to say. Yeah. He has to say some rude words.
2: He does. Yeah, because he makes on sort of
1: Lunchtime. lunchtime-ish. Yeah.
2: But then Krunkhawk doesn't hold back for this sort of thing because, no. you know, there are ones that... There was one we watched the other week, which was about sort of um wife swapping. Yeah, which is a bit sort of much for this time of day as well. There's
1: some words that we won't repeat because they're yes. they're a bit sort of racist. During much they? of their time.
2: Yeah, racist well, the, or just discriminatory. Yeah,
1: but I do like the word rapscallion. Rapscallion
2: is a great I, word. Yeah, I had to
1: I had to write down rapscallion. Yes.
2: We should we should get rapscallion in in more sort of wider use. Yeah.
1: Um, I, I should say, we should say about um, William Irvin, he's, he's in black, isn't he? he? Black is. and dark blue. Black and dark blue. Normally he's in red, but yes. you said that's for uh, criminal cases. Yeah, I think red is it? for
2: criminal cases and this black is, is for this civil. Is,
1: this is a civil one, yeah. yeah. I mean, the whole thing about judges' robes terribly complicated. is complicated.
2: Because different circuits have different colours.
1: Yeah. I like the way there's a the suggestion that balls have psychological problems too. he
2: looks very, very... It's, 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 they have, what? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's the end of part one advert break cliffhanger, it is. isn't it? Yeah, yes. yeah. But apparently some balls uh, suffer from shyness, don't mm-hmm. they? And I, I like the way the camera just suddenly picks up Milton Johns sitting, yes. sitting there. Sort of
2: grinning.
1: And that's what happens a lot with Crown Court, because yeah. everybody has to sort of be there, don't they? Yes. And even if you... Don't necessarily get much to say in an episode. Mm-hmm. You you you've got to be sat on the bench, yeah, and, and the you camera will just drift across. Yeah. Like, oh, there's Milton Johns. Yes. What's he doing there? <laughs> but yeah, he, he turns out to be the the bidding agent, doesn't he? That it-
2: no, he's another he's in another cattle agent. Yeah, but uh, Ronald Radd's character.
1: Got him to bid. Got him
2: to bid against him, so they could push the price up.
1: And you know what I was thinking of? I was thinking of Captain Mannering and Pike bidding oh, for, for the, the Orange. oranges. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, again, we're, we're filling in Forchester here.
2: Yes, Forchester is—I um, don't know how big Forchester is. Forchester's
1: like, infinite.
2: Yeah, it's like as big as London. Yeah, they keep adding extra bits because it's got a dog track and it's got a marina yeah. and it's got.
1: No, no, it's got a bull, a bull market, bull and a market, bull show, yeah, yeah. and I like the fact we we name one of the pubs, which yes. is the Salutation. Salutation. The Salutation. That's yes. a, good a, a good name for a pub. It's a good
2: name for a pub. You don't get names like that anymore.
1: Yeah, I really want to see somebody draw a map of Fulchester as to yeah, where all be, these things are.
2: You'd have to do it in areas because, as I say, it's infi- infinite. Yeah.
1: So, but yeah, so we we we're very much sort of setting the case up in yes. in in part one, aren't, yeah. aren't we? Mm-hmm. So we can't really sort of go too much into the ins and yeah. outs of it here mm-hmm. uh but what, what do you think of it so far then
2: yeah it's, it's fun it's um it's a typical david fisher slightly odd slightly odd episode yeah. he doesn't write normal episodes david fisher no which is good because you know you, you you'd want something a little bit different don't you but yeah it's it's interesting I, at this precise moment because i can't remember what the verdict is
1: no no idea i no. can't
2: i don't know whose side i'm on
1: all right but that, that's the, that's the beauty of the writing, isn't yeah. it? That often your sort of sympathies will bat back and forth yeah. as as things come to light. Yes. And but then that that's how it would be if you were sat yeah. there in the jury, isn't it? Yeah. You, you 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 might go in, you know, on the first day with one opinion, but mm-hmm. that might change yeah. during the course of the thing. And so- then change again. Yeah. by the end of it. So that that that's that's where the sort of cleverness in the writing sort of, sort yes. of comes across. So yes. yeah, I, I I don't know at the moment what I think. Mm-hmm. No. And and we shall we shall work that out over the next two episodes. Mm-hmm. So anything else to say or should we crack on with part 2? I two? think we'll
2: crack on with part 2. Um, okay. I would say you know if you've never seen Crown Court, do seek it out because yeah. it's great fun. There are some slightly grimmer episodes, yeah. but there are plenty of fun ones along the way, and they're usually written by David Fisher.
4: Yeah. Well,
1: hmm. Andrew and Lisa will continue the case when Rand the Archives returns to the Crown Court later.
4: The case of DeCosta against McEver will be resumed tomorrow in the Crown Court. Story Tucker's
0: Countryside was adapted for Jack and Ori by Paul Stone.
1: Thank you very much, Lisa, for helping with that.
0: That's
2: okay, thank you, Andrew.
1: That article will be sprinkled through the rest of the issue. Yes,
2: may you keep on listening. But
1: now we convert ourselves to 525 lines again. Okay. As
4: Toppy Smelly of the Smellcast returns to look at The Magician. Hello there, round the archives, Lisa and Andrew. It's me, Toppy Smelly. I want to tell you about a very obscure American television series from the early 70s. Now, I got to tell you, this TV series was right up my alley because as a kid, in 1974, when this series debuted, I was something of an amateur magician. Yeah, I was one of those weird kids that did magic at birthday parties. So, when I discovered the show in 1974, midway through its run, well, I took right to it, and I've remembered it ever since. I'm talking about the one hour drama adventure called The Magician. the magician was portrayed by American TV star Bill Bixby, who already had two successful television series under his belt. Bill Bixby starred in My Favorite Martian from 1963 to 1966 on CBS television. My Favorite Martian was one of those wacky sitcoms that followed the kind of plot lines that you would have seen in Bewitched or I Dream of Jeannie, except in this case, uh, the person doing all the magic and mischief was an alien from another planet, portrayed by Ray Ralston. And in the series, we find Bixby portraying a very likable bachelor. Bixby imbues the character with a winning personality, with Bixby himself developing a fine sense of comedic timing. After his successful run on My Favorite Martian, Bixby landed another role as a very likable bachelor. Debuting in 1969 and running until 1972, Bixby co-starred with the young actor Brandon Cruz. This was the highly successful half-hour sitcom called The Courtship of Eddie's Father. People let me tell you about my best friend He's a warm-hearted person who loved me till the end of. The Courtship of Eddie's Father was based on a 1963 movie starring Glenn Ford by the same name. And in it, Bixby creates another very likable and sensitive leading male character. Most of the plot lines involved his son manipulating his father into meeting some new women that the kid hoped would make his father happy and sweetly himself a new mother. Bixby and Cruz were terrific opposite each other and cemented Bixby once again as a sensitive, likable leading man. Well, a very likable man, a very uh, sensitive man, was exactly what the producers of The Magician were after. And they got him, Bill Bixby. In The Magician, Bill Bixby was cast as the millionaire, playboy, professional magician, Anthony Tony Blake
0: offered me my old job back
4: ah uh, did you take it
0: not a chance
4: good for you please
0: tell me i really can't accept this and anyway you did all the work
4: but you did me a favor you satisfied my professional curiosity
0: oh but it doesn't seem fair
4: but it is among magicians professional curiosity is our strongest drive
5: oh
4: our second strongest drive Ah. Oh. Oh, ha -ha. Yes, our hero Anthony Blake was quite the ladies' man. And he would often use that to his advantage when up against a femme fatale. In a scene from the episode titled Shattered Image, released on January 6, 1974, we find Bixby opposite actress Leslie Parrish. The two are aboard Tony's private jet, which doubles as his home. Parrish believes she is seducing Tony to get information out of him. Tony, on the other hand, is using the seduction as misdirection to plant false information that will eventually trap the bad guys.
0: <laughs> I've never seen anything like this.
1: Well, in my case, a, uh, a home is not a house.
0: What's your connection with Willoughby? I know you built his act.
1: Yes, well, he, uh, he's an old friend.
0: And the kid, Paula? New friend. Are you always so good to your friends? I cherish them. I like that. You going to help Paula's father too?
1: But fortunately, he doesn't need any help.
0: He didn't murder anybody.
1: And also, fortunately, we have a witness.
4: Can I trust you?
0: What are friends for?
1: Of course. It's Paula. What?
0: Yes, she saw the killing, and so I made an arrangement for her. At Ten o'clock
4: tonight. And so here us? we have magician Anthony Blake alone with a beautiful woman in his expensive jet home, applying her with expensive champagne and using his good looks, smoldering eyes, and sensitive voice. To manipulate a femme fatale, having solved the mystery and set a trap where later the actual police would come in and make the arrests. After all, Anthony wasn't a cop or a detective, just a clever magician. The idea of a non-violent crime solver and Playboy millionaire were two of the ideas that helped sell this series to NBC. At the time, a highly sought-after demographic were women. The networks kind of had the men all wrapped up, but there was a whole new audience out there to sell goods to that the networks were aching to take advantage of. And they were cashing in on Bill Bixby's proven record with the ladies, especially cultivated in the courtship of Eddie's father, to bring in female viewers. The other selling point to the network was nonviolence. This was a time in 72-73 that audiences were responding very negatively to the amount of violence on TV. Well, especially on Saturday morning cartoons, but also in general on their whole lineup of shows in prime time. So to respond, networks were trying to do better by creating such hit shows as the Waltons, or Little House on the Prairie. And in this project, The Magician, the network felt that they could have an adventure show, a someone solving crimes, getting into trouble, but doing it in a nonviolent way. So when Anthony Blake did come up against criminals often armed, he would defeat them using his brains, his cleverness, and sometimes magic and misdirection. In fact, the writers had a particularly problematic challenge writing the show to come up with scenarios week to week that this could believably happen. But they did, often, quite successfully. So here's an example of what I'm talking about. In one episode, Anthony Blake has to rescue a woman in distress who is being restrained inside a recreational vehicle parked along a highway. Inside are two bad guys with guns. Now, I'm sure you, like me, would have no problem envisioning how a typical drama show of this era might have handled this scenario. Well, the hero would have come in by kicking in the door of the RV, using his fist to smash in the faces of the villains and rescuing the damsel in distress. But that's not how it worked on The Magician. So how does our hero, Anthony Blake, resolve this dilemma? Well, he scopes out the scene and pre-plans everything. The writers took advantage of the fact that he's a magician and a renowned escape artist, knowledgeable in the ways of ropes and knots and things like that. Once Blake conceives a good sound plan in his head, he, unarmed, puts his plan into action. He lures out one of the bad guys by creating a disturbance outside. When one of the bad guys comes out to investigate, he surprises him by slipping a slipknot loop over his wrist and quickly getting him on his stomach and tying his hands behind his back. And because of his knowledge of ropes and knots, this is accomplished in mere seconds. Once the first bad guy is outside helpless on the ground, shouting to alert, the second bad guy, who's still inside the RV, who then comes out to see what's happening to his friend. But by that time, the magician has disappeared and run behind the RV, dashed around to the front where the door is, and behind the back of the second bad guy who is trying to help his friend on the ground who's tied up, Blake slips inside the RV and drives away, thereby rescuing the damsel in distress. There's no real fight scene, no punching, there are no gunshots, but nonetheless, the audience is entertained with an exciting rescue in an action-adventure series that was unlike anything else on TV at the time. Now, aside from using magic tricks to disorientate his opponents, Anthony Blake also used his knowledge of magic to gain entryway in all kinds of ways. If Anthony Blake was questioning someone in the middle of an investigation, as he was always doing, he might use magic to win over the person's trust or charm the person make them more susceptible to releasing information. Here's a great example from episode three, Illusion and Terror. Blake is convinced a young boy in a hospital has information that is important to his investigation, but the boy suffering from some sort of trauma hasn't spoken a word to anyone in weeks. With great compassion and sensitivity, Blake performs a few simple magic tricks to engage the boy in a way that begins to break down the barriers he's put around himself. In this scene, you're about to hear, Blake begins his impromptu magic act with an old effect well known to magicians everywhere, the torn and restored paper trick. In this case, the torn pieces of paper are restored into a paper hat or a sombrero that Blake puts on the boy's head. But it's not enough. The boy's not talking, not giving up. Blake transforms a handkerchief into a puppet, and through his magic puppet, Blake encourages the boy to talk to him. Watch
1: that carefully, Sombrero, amigo, for cowboy Luis. Doctor Ward. Now, a trick I think you can do too. I just happen to have two handkerchiefs here. One for you and one for me. Now, watch it very carefully. Take one end like this and we tie a knot in it, see? Then you reach in behind and you you put your finger in it. Like that, see? Now, well, in this case, we'll use a rubber
0: band. Put it over one finger, all the way around, and over another, and then...
1: Buenos dias, muchacho. Como te llamas?
4: Luis Velasquez. Yes. Ah,
1: ah. Are you my friend? See, si.
0: we're friends. Bueno.
4: So that's a perfect example of how the writers would incorporate magic into the storyline. And I think you can hear in Bixby's voice why he was so good in this role as the magician. One thing the writers took care of early on in the beginning was to provide a motivation for Anthony Blake to just be so damn kind and helpful uh, to everyone that he met. So a background story was established in only a couple of episodes and only in dialogue. The writers established that Blake was once imprisoned in South America on trumped-up charges. But somehow Blake escapes the prison along the way helping another inmate in a similar situation in the process. But shortly thereafter, his fellow inmate dies, but not before leaving his vast wealth to Tony. In some versions of the story, the man that Blake meets in prison and befriends is a magician who teaches Blake over the years everything he needs to know about magic. Either way, the writers establish that the long ordeal in prison and being falsely accused leaves Blake with both physical and psychological scars. For example, around his wrists, he bore the scars of where he was once shackled. At any rate, once Tony is free, he dedicates his life to helping friends in need or those who are in mortal danger largely by his vast wealth and his skills as an illusionist magician. In other words, Blake just cannot countenance wrong being done to others, especially his friends, whom he cherishes. Now, as much as I hate to say so, the magician did have its problems. Chief among them, a lackluster supporting cast that the writer's Kind of didn't know what to do with. Originally, the series had three main supporting characters. First of all, his trusty pilot. The next two supporting characters were father and son. First, the father, Max Pomeroy, an influential newspaper columnist, and Pomeroy's wheelbound chair son, who was an expert researcher. About midway through the first, and only season, the producers made a change and got rid of Pomeroy for the most part and his wheelbound chair son, who we never saw again. <laughs> they kept Jim, the trusty pilot, and added a new character who was Blake's Assistant, personal secretary, slash manager, slash valet. Uh, and uh, actually this character, his name was Dominic, brought much needed comic relief to the magician. The other big change that came around at the same time is that the producers knew that they had set the magician up with his jet and uh, his car and this whole thing that they really only had the money to show once. And that was for the pilot. <laughs> and they didn't film all of that much of the, uh, the car coming out of the jet. You know, his uh, white Corvette, if I haven't mentioned that before. Uh, the magician drove a beautiful white Corvette with the uh, license plate, the Spirit. At any rate, uh, the producer said, we can't afford to keep doing this. So a change was inexplicably put in uh, that, uh, well, Anthony didn't have his plane anymore, but he did live in L.A. at a real place called the Magic Castle. That's a real thing. It still exists today. It's a club for magicians and magic enthusiasts, members only. And uh, they decided that Anthony now lived on the top floor, and that was his home base. That was his home, and they brought in this dominant character. And here's a clip uh of uh, possibly i think maybe the first episode that featured the location of this real life place in LA called the magic castle and also the first appearance of dominic
1: thank you very much now the tradition here is that you say open sesame to the owl
4: open sesame see <laughs> Now if I tap here, you see the ball he's here. It's all in a palace the place. is want. fantastic.
1: What is it? Well, we this is the castle, and magicians ah. and sleight-of-hand artists gather here, and civilians from all over the world come to watch.
4: And you
0: live here?
1: Yeah, on the top floor. Tony, how are you? Dominic, Dominic, how are you? This is Sharon Darnell. Dominic is our host. Not only does he have the world's finest cuisine a wine cellar tonight. <laughs> He's always trying to marry you.
6: Marry me up,
4: don't mind Gilbert, any messages?
0: Uh, that thank party you. from West Berlin thank called you. A, thank you. Good. Everyone is doing fine. She was Good. Uh, and miss Pamela you. Taylor also called. Want to know if you could play a little honeymoon bridge tonight? Oh,
4: Tony, shall I um, get Sharon a table? Yes.
0: yes, would you? He'll get you your own private table. Fine. Miss Pamela?
4: <laughs> 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 oh, yes. Oh, thank our you. Tony is still quite the playboy. All right, to end my presentation about the magician, (laughs) we got to talk just a little bit about the magic that you saw on this TV show. As the uh, producers famously wanted you to know at the beginning of many episodes is that no trick photography was used in the performance of magic. I'm The Magician.
5: All of the magic you're about to see is performed without quick photography of any kind by Bill Bixby, The Magician.
4: So the pilot episode kind of got away with a few things along those lines. And Bill Bixby made it his priority uh, to not have that happen again in the series and to ground the magic into real, a real performance. And he wanted to do the performing. And apparently, Bill Bixby thought of himself as a bit of an amateur magician. He had fooled around with it, I guess. And he wanted to do... He didn't want trick photography. He didn't want shady things happening. happen. He wanted the magic to be real in its performance. And... So they brought in a consultant by the name of Mark Wilson who made a name for himself in L.A. early on in TV broadcasting. Uh, He became one of the first regular magicians you might see performing on television uh, as TV developed. So Mark Wilson... Uh, was the consultant. He taught Bill Bixby uh, behind the scenes how to do things. And I imagine also was part of, uh, of how, you know, they would consult him in how can we work a trick in here? How can we work this magic in here? And Mark Wilson, with his years of magic experience and knowledge, would come up with something that would fit into the storyline. So, folks, uh, to wrap it up, well, the magician never really got the ratings that the network wanted. And then an additional problem came along uh, as it ceased production for its first season, and that was the big deal American writer strike of the time that really waylaid a lot of shows, and The Magician was one of them. It never really recovered, and uh, the whole thing kind of dissolved after that. But Bill Bixby went on to have a, a long career in television as an actor, and then later as a director. Most famously, for his role as David Banner in The Incredible Hulk. Sadly, in 1993, Bill Bixby lost a long battle with cancer and passed away at the uh, premature age of 59. But he left uh, an over 30-year legacy of his acting and directing credits that we can all remember him for, and I will never forget... The Magician. So, folks, that is about it. I'm going to wrap up this um, article about The Magician. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope I can come back again and maybe bring you some other obscure little TV shoe you knew nothing about. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.
0: Walkstone by Jay Williams was adapted for television by Roger
1: Singleton-Turner. Many thanks to Toppy.
2: Yes, thank you, Toppy.
1: Lovely to have him back and yes. looking forward to seeing what he's got up his sleeve next time.
2: Yes, he may return with Paul. He may be on his own.
1: We shall see. Mm. Right, next up is the part two of our Crancourt Court article. And mm-hmm. then after that, we'll go into Martin looking at...
2: Quite
0: a mess in the pit. At the 1972 Fulchester bull sales, a world record price was paid for Minos Medic Mackenzie, an Aberdeen Angus bull bred by Colonel Ulrich McKeever. The buyer, Angelus de Costa, claims that the auction was rigged at his
4: own instigation by a cattle dealer and agent, Gus Enderby, with Colonel McEver's consent. Gus Enderby is now in the witness box. Let me
0: make myself quite clear, Colonel McEver, this is the last occasion in which I will tolerate any interruption.
1: Welcome back,
2: Lisa. Thank you, Andrew.
1: <laughs> Crown Court, episode two. Yes. First thing I wrote down was there's a lot of pointing going on. There was the a start. lot of
2: pointing going on. It's the it's the public gallery, isn't it? It's
1: the background extras. They're yes. all gesticulating. They are. We've we got good
2: sideburns and moustaches yeah. well the men not the lady yeah. it's one lady but yeah they've got sort of good moustaches and beards and, well sideburns not beards
1: yeah and we, we start off with milton johns where we left do. off don't yes. we and he, and he gets quite a good showing he doesn't does he?
2: he's doing his best oily milton johns-esque acting yeah that's the well. thing if you
1: like recognize him from enemy of the world or, yeah. or something it's not a million miles away no. is it
2: no he always seems to play those kind of parts
1: yeah but, yeah, I mean, that's why the casting is so good in these, isn't mm. it? You, you, get, you, get, you get decent parts for people. Yes. Um, yeah, there's and, not
2: a lot of guest stars, but they get a lot to do.
1: Yeah. And uh, um, William Mervin's uh, not putting up with any interruptions, is he? No,
2: no, because the, the, the shot is um, uh, James Copeland as, as Colonel McKeever standing and pointing.
1: Yeah. And I wrote down a few choice phrases like pip squeak. Yes. <laughs> and jimmy riddle you don't hear the phrase jimmy riddle enough these days you don't know do it's not
2: yeah. polite to mention it
1: though um william mervyn is grinning at one point yes, isn't he, is. he? the yeah. camera sort of cuts to him and mm. I, i'm assuming it, it it's acting it's yeah. not william mervyn co- corpsing mm. but you never know mm. don't you? um but I, I wrote down that um th- this is this is in some ways Jack jackanory for adults isn't it yeah, you know it um, yeah. we, we've talked about Martin talked about Jack and Ori mm-hmm. earlier. Yeah. But because of the structure of the show, you don't mm. get to see the action.
2: No, we can't. It yeah. would be
1: too expensive. The nearest you occasionally get to it is a few black and white photos. Yeah. Although we did see, what was the one at the with the party? Oh,
2: the, the one with the wife swapping. Yeah. Yeah, they did a tiny bit of filming Yeah. Uh, in somebody's of, back garden. Of a barbecue. Of a barbecue. It was about... Six people yeah. all clustered together to make it look more But
1: here it's very much story not action. You're yes. being told what happened. You are. And yeah. of course, because you're told by various sources it never quite joins up.
2: No. Because it's obviously from their yeah. individual point of view.
1: But yeah. But yeah, Colonel McKeever gets in the dock, doesn't he? And yes. you have this thing where they ask what religion you are. Yes. And often it's C of E. Yeah. Um, or L...
2: Or... There is no religion or a yeah. Catholic or whatever.
1: Yeah, because if you're an atheist, you have to affirm. You have not to swear. affirm, yeah. But Colonel McKeever comes out with the original successionist Kirk and pacifist. Pacifist,
2: yeah. And then that's never picked up again.
1: Well, not yet. I don't no. know whether we'll deal with it. But it, it, it's just wonderful that that is the end of part one.
2: Cliffhanger.
1: Advert cliffhanger, yeah. isn't it? It's a really weird place to put it that. Is. but. yeah. But hey, but then the cliffhanger at the end's quite odd. Yes, as well. it's a bit all
2: over the place. This yeah. one
1: isn't it? But I love the fact that his pet name for the the bull is Dougal. Dougal, yeah. So you imagine a b- big, hairy thing. Yes. Yeah. I I remember once years ago we were in the middle of the country and and I saw a huge bull on the horizon <laughs> and I was scared it was going to get in the car. <laughs> okay. It was a big thing with horns. Right. Yeah. I quite like bulls, though. Bulls yeah. are all right. Have you ever met a bull up close? I've
2: never met a bull up close. i met cows. Yeah, Cows are very intelligent.
1: Cows have acted in Sutton yes. Park. Cows yeah. will
2: come to see what you're doing. Especially when you're filming. Yeah, because yeah. they're really nosy cows.
1: But I like this, this thing that, um, that Ronald Rand needs the like the biggest yacht and the yeah. best ball and the blonde with the biggest yeah, dot, dot, dot. he, gets, dot, he dot. gets
2: cut off before he gets to finish that sentence. <laughs> yeah. There's a
1: lot of sentences he doesn't finish because he yeah. says that little, I didn't say it, my lord. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a reference to the pudding club as well. Yes. There's a nice little point here about how um, if you do a test mm. on a bull or something, the results of that test are only valid on the day you did the test. Yes. The results might have been utterly different a day before or a day after. Yeah. And that's well worth pointing out in the current yes. climate. Yeah. But test, testing can only give you information on the point of that test when, that it, was, when it was made. Yeah, yeah. Right. and uh, um, the, the tapes, I would say, uh, this episode two, I don't know quite what's going on, but there's mm-hmm. there's a bit where they seem to have done a slowed down shot of Ronald Rad, mm-hmm. almost as though there was a tape fault. Yeah. And I think what's happened is they've got the sound for it, but there's some picture break up. Yeah. So I think when making the DVD, they mm. just slowed the shot down so you don't get a horrible yes, sort, of sort of picture of. dropout or something yeah. like that. I'm, I'm not, not in, entirely sure. And but... I
2: do wonder if that's what causes the abrupt end as well. Possibly. Well, because... I
1: don't know. I know. It, it because Richard Wilson's about to say something isn't and he and it cuts and it cuts off and I wonder whether they realised in editing the yeah. episode was overrunning Maybe. I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a, a tape fault at this point I think it's just oh blimey we need to put the cliffhanger in because I, I get get the feeling the show's not allowed to overrun its no, its, its slot, slot. So, oh. it, so it's all very locked down yeah
2: because it's, it's like a sort of 24 minute slot isn't it because obviously you, it's, it's a half an hour um, transmission slot mm. with a Advert break, Advert break in the in middle. The middle
1: yeah. so. But what do you think of this part two then? Yeah, I
2: I, I like it. I'm yeah. I think I'm currently on the side of the colonel who's coming across much.
1: All right.
2: Better. Okay. I think because yeah. he's got a sense of humour. Maybe. Okay. Yeah.
1: Well, we'll see how it but goes. But we'll see
2: you if it swings back again.
1: Yeah, next I'm- time. I, I'm I'm a little undecided at the moment because yeah. the the trouble is it, 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 it's is all this shady business in the rigging of the auction, isn't yes. it? And like nobody's mm. denying that it. No. You know. That well, it,
2: Colonel McKeever says he doesn't know anything yeah, about it. Yeah. Yeah. So but, uh, it's uh, definitely going on between uh, Ronald Rad and Milton Johns characters. Yeah.
1: But again, because because you've you filled in some detail about like that milton johns's past history with the yeah. colonel as, as well yeah. you know as he sort of got a long-term vendetta against yes. him and, and that's the whole thing about when they say about reasonable doubt yes and yeah the the idea of reasonable doubt is such a vague phrase mm. mm-hmm. um a good writer like david fisher can can just fill in a few background details yeah. and just color the characters mm. so that you do start to wonder what yeah. is what is going on and mm-hmm. and, and that's why i think crown court really works That mm-hmm. essentially nothing happens no. for three episodes no, it's, does it? there's
2: no big real dramas yeah. is there
1: it's just character and dialogue yeah. and and good actors and good directors yeah and yeah, we'll, we'll say about Wojtek the director. I think in in, in part three, but mm-hmm. yeah, this this one. I mean, I don't know. It's, I don't know whether any Crown Court plots are are, are remembered by the general public at all. Probably cause, not. Cause,
2: I think Crown Court is barely remembered by yeah. the general public. It's remembered quite fondly by a certain age group mm. of people who would have seen it when they were off school school sick. sick. Yeah. So it's. I think a lot of call is is um, in people's memories
1: is associated with Lucaside. Yeah, but my memory of it is that I'd see it listed and assume it was real. Mm. I didn't. I don't think I even realised it was fiction. Okay. So I'd see it in the listings and go, oh, I don't want to watch that. Mm. But having come to it so much later, yeah, I'm just slightly annoyed I missed it all the first <laughs> time round. Yes, I'm yes. not. I'm not sure how glued to it i would have been Not, no uh, but but now just dipping back yeah. into it again I, oh this is so clever this it's, is
2: yeah, it's about time that network release some more yeah. really i think it's quite a hard series but, to release
1: but could, could you see it being done now I could. A, a, as a, as yeah. a lunchtime yeah. drama because it would be so cheap to do. It would.
2: I mean, it, I could see the BBC doing it because I we have very few lunchtime dramas yeah. now. But the BBC have sort of do Father but, Brown. But you've got doctors sort of
1: and things like yeah. that. And, it would and, be after doctors. Yeah, and Crown Court would be a wonderful thing to bring back. It would. All you need is the writers. Yeah. And, and yeah. away you go. Yeah.
2: And maybe you'd even have a thing where you'd show it for three days and rather than having a jury, you'd have actors as a jury and you'd yeah. have. The audience at home deciding because yeah. yeah. they're very, very much interactive now so. so yeah
1: there's a suggestion for the bbc have a have a look at doing Crown court in a yeah in a different way and if
2: you do it we want a commission yeah
1: oh uh, uh, yeah I'll, 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 we'll be the consultants yes yeah. all right so we'll return with episode three mm-hmm. when ran the archives takes another trip to the Crown court
4: The case of DaCosta against MacIver will be resumed tomorrow in the Crown Court.
0: Hans Christian Andersen's words were spoken by Frederick, and the guitar was played by Michael Jessett. Jack and Ori with Nina will be back at the same time tomorrow. <laughs>
3: Quatermass the Pit. Episode 5, The Wild Hunt. Episode 5 of the Nigel Neal six-part serial Quatermass in the Pit was broadcast on the 19th of January 1959 and the official viewing figures hit a new high of 10.6 million. People were obviously talking about it. The Wild Hunt might actually be considered to be the calm before the storm or perhaps the very last opportunity to explain to the viewers at home the writer's reasoning behind the whole piece just to help them catch up with where we are and what exactly is happening let's be honest there won't be much time for that sort of thing during the hectic final episode but this episode manages to visualize through the use of the martians a lot of what we will have to imagine that a lot of human beings get up to in that brutal gut punch of a final episode remember what you see during a rather vivid sequence here is what is implied happens on the streets of London in a week's time, but once again we're getting ahead of ourselves. The running time for this episode is just shy of 36 minutes, and it's just as well because there's an awful lot to cram in. First, there's a recap, which, on the surviving film copies, seems to be a very different voice this week. I suppose it depended on who was available, but the tone is also far more emphatic, leaving little doubt in the minds of the viewers at home that, at least according to the story so far, we are the descendants of a long-lost Martian civilization. Well, it saves time if that's a given from the get-go from now on. We also get to see a much shorter re-edited silent montage showing the highlights of the terrifying events involving poor Mr. Sladden during the lengthy last section of episode 4, accompanied by a suitably spooky soundtrack which manages to maintain the creepiness without undermining the drama, which is quite some task, and ending with that sinister vision of the pebbles on the ground rolling and undulating beneath his terrified form, and we still don't know quite what happened to him after that. In fact, the episode proper starts with Barbara Judd, played by Christine Finn, and really earning a keep in this one, as she is finally given a lot to do and plenty of chances to shine, which she seizes magnificently. We meet Barbara as we return to the dig site as John Stratton's Captain Potter comes to her aid, as she stumbles up from the pit with a wound on her forehead from where something hit her during Sladden's ordeal. Strangely enough, having suffered from a supernatural assault, she is handled very much like the victim of a physical assault would be here and her description of how she got hurt and shocked reports of what she saw and heard and Sladden running away are very evocative of exactly the way that that sort of scene might have been played in a police drama at the time although the things she says are still suggestive of more unearthly goings-on and when Michael Ripper's sergeant joins them earning his pay for the week by talking in a serious alarm tone of the way Sladden moved the sinister air of strange goings-on is maintained by the actors treating the material with a rightful, solemn respect. Leaving Barbara to be cared for by the sergeant, Captain Potter goes into the now quiet hull of the Martian spaceship and examines the now dark lamps and the now still wires. Meanwhile the rest of the squad, including our everyman figure Harold Goodwin's Corporal Gibson, walked down the ramp still bewildered by the sights they saw as Sladden fled, now claiming that they knew something was going to happen because of the sudden deadly cold. Potter meets them talking about smashed lamps and torn cables and suddenly very concerned because he knows all about the breaking strength of those cables and the power of the forces that could have done such a thing to them. Potter, it seems, is now more convinced about the real danger the thing in the pit now represents and is suddenly quite keen to talk to Professor Quatermass, who, we are reminded, has been called off to that conference at the war office that so vexed us during episode four. He asks Barbara if she might be able to go and look for him and offers her the use of the Land Rover to do so and in another nod to the fact that this is truly an ongoing narrative Barbara first wants to retrieve her notes from Crispin's hut which was the reason she returned to the pit before the whole Sladden incident kicked off last week. Potter, meanwhile, wants to go and find Sladden. In a cop drama it might be to seek his revenge on the assailant who hurt his girl but we're not in a cop drama despite the tropes. In the eerie darkness of his office at the Institute, the camera favours the sinister face of one of those preserved Martians before we find Cess Linder's Roni asleep at his desk. He is woken by Quatermass bursting in furious after his meeting and angry at the pig-headedness of the Minister, born, of course, out of fear and wanting easy answers to the complicated questions that Quatermass keeps on asking. To be fair, however... From the Minister's point of view, he does have someone blaming ancient biological experiments by Martians upon Pliocene ape men for what's going on, and someone suggesting that we owe our human condition to the intervention of insects. Even I struggle to think that would play well on the 6 o'clock news, and I've been following the plot. Colonel Breen's propaganda weapon theory really isn't a much safer bet, even if you know, like the viewers do by now, that it's a fundamentally flawed theory, despite the common sense of it. As ever, politicians remain scared of the press, their colleagues and being blamed for something. The culture so expertly dissected 20 years later by Yes Minister is being cleverly foreshadowed here, thankfully. We are saved from the sight of Breen looking for a tiny swastika printed on those preserved Martian remains but our interior alarm bells start ringing when we hear that all precautions have now been cancelled at the site of the pit. Darwin is uh, rightly name-checked here, by the way, as the two scientists drink their coffee in an episode that does feature hot beverages a lot a shorthand for ordinary human needs in the face of adversity. In the midst of all this righteous anger between two middle-aged men coming face to face with idiocy, Barbara arrives, now sporting her dressing on the cut on her head, and because she's feeling a bit fainty, having dashed all over town despite her ordeal looking for the professor, Roni slips her a swift shot of that brandy he's always so ashamed of carrying as she describes her experiences at the pit and how something hits her. This becomes a big scene for her and she sells it brilliantly telling us once again about everything in the pit came alive and how Sladdon didn't seem human anymore. They're interrupted by a phone call, also taken by Barbara, who really is at the centre of the action for the moment, and showing that she's not a shrinking violet. Or is it just that these two old blokes simply expect her to answer the phone despite everything she's been through? And we hear that Captain Potter has indeed found Sladden, Last seen, remember, lying on the ground, surrounded by those undulating pebbles. And Barbara won't be put off because, hauntingly, she needs to see what Sladden looks like now rather than the terrifying figure she saw earlier. And so they all dash off, as once again the camera favours the figure of the Martian and mixes to a stone gargoyle in the vestry of the church, emphasising once again a point made during the researches in the archives during the previous episodes. In this vestry, gloriously lit throughout this scene by a sinister flickering firelight, the vicar, played by Noel Howlett, who telly fans will know far better for his later works in sitcoms like Please Sir, is pacing anxiously until we find Sladden deep in shock, sitting at a chair, being given a huge mug of what turns out to be cocoa beverage spotters, provided by a woman who is a supporting artist and described in the script book as stout, in a way that we frowned upon today. Quatermass and Barbara arrive and are greeted by Captain Potter. And, whilst Barbara is initially nervous of Sladden, he has the sincere and faintly embarrassed air of someone who went far too far at a drunken party meeting his friends the morning after. Despite the chaos of his experiences earlier, all is quiet now. The professor introduces himself with a hearty, My name's Quatermass, which the vicar counters with an icy, And mine's Gilpin. And seems frostily defensive of his charge, as he explains that he understands that Quatermass was this man's employer, at least for today. Bloody freelancers. Anyway. Seemingly satisfied that Quatermass is not indeed the spawn of Satan, although if he looked at his records with regard to the fates of his employees he might have had a bigger shock, Gilpin proceeds to fill in the professor on what brought this poor unfortunate to his door that night. He seems genuinely concerned about Sladdon, as well he might, given what he witnessed when they met, but reluctantly agrees to allow further questioning once it is suggested that there might be further danger in waiting. Potter and Barbara share a small bonding moment as the cast rearrange themselves. More cocoa is poured, and because it truly is an excellent performance by Richard Shaw, his calmness turns to quiet fear and then outright terror as he is pulled back into the memory of running in fear from a vision of creatures like the ones they found in the hull, becoming one of the creatures himself, and a description of ancient Mars jumping and leaping and the huge places reaching up into a sky of dark, dark purple then the strange sinister radiophonic noise that we have started to associate with the more terrifying moment starts up again and a fire poker suddenly possessed in much the same way as the object at the building site falls crashing to the ground breaking the spell and allowing the noise to fade to nothing again the same thing all over again only on a far reduced scale The room seems suddenly colder, as does the vicar's mood as he starts to preach and is interrupted by Quatermass, suggesting that whatever the vicar thinks has possessed Sladdon might very well have always been lying dormant within him and all of us. This gives the vicar something to latch on to. And as he starts to babble about the difference between faith and science and fashionable explanations for the inexplicable, he seems genuinely surprised to find Quatermass agreeing with him about the nature of evil, albeit an ancient evil that has been lying buried in a pit, mostly undisturbed, for five million years. For life on ancient Mars is precisely what he believes Sladden experienced and described to them. And whilst he really wants to investigate this further, he suggests an experimental reconstruction of what happened that night should be attempted back at the pit. The vicar, however, puts his foot down at Sladdon being put in further peril. It's a powerful trigger word for viewers at home, that peril. And refuses to let Sladden be put through any more of this, at least not that night. Sladdon, however, is a rather lovable and helpful old soul with good insurance, remember? And because he is an ordinary bloke with a certain amount of bravery, agrees to try as long as the vicar comes along to look after him. And so the plot is about to move on, and our heroes are about to leave. However, from beyond a doorway into the main church, a noise is heard, and we are momentarily on edge again, only to find, false jeopardy alert, that it's only that callous, self-serving journalist-slash-reporter, James Fullerlove, lurking in the shadows again, and heartlessly taking a moment to take a snapshot of the unfortunate Sladden in the pursuit of his latest scoop. We cut to the War Office where Colonel Breen remember him is dictating his press release into a recording machine the size of a small refrigerator and whilst the minister and his private secretary are congratulating themselves at successfully announcing that the missile was indeed an evil Nazi hoax and having it believed by their pals in the press again little changes does it Captain Potter bursts into well burst their bubble. This brief scene serves to cover the move as Quatermass, Roney, and making himself surprisingly comfortable in Roney's office, James Fullerlove, explain that Potter is unlikely to have any chance in getting the war office to retract their statement, which rather cleverly serves to explain the scene we have just witnessed without it needing to be any longer than it was. Then we are introduced to the device as we see Roney and Barbara tinkering with the purely experimental optic encephalograph plot device that will drive much of the story for the rest of this episode and serve to demonstrate a hideous massacre involving space aliens without the need to actually film a hideous massacre involving human beings next week, because we see it on ancient Mars so we can imagine the streets running with those rivers of blood. But I'm getting ahead of myself again aren't I? Anyway, this device gets a quick test, a lot of explanation about how it's supposed to work, whilst journalist, no reporter, same difference, James Fullerlove discusses the fact that the missile or whatever in the pit is far from inert and seems capable of turning vibrations or electricity or energy from any source into something that affects people. This is important stuff, people, so take note. Much of what is to happen later on is explained right there if you're paying attention. Brian Worth, incidentally, is far better in this episode than he was back in that scene in episode 3, Imps and Demons, that so vexed me, so I guess it must have been an aberration fuelled by adrenaline that week. Anyway, he's been a journalist, sorry, reporter, for 12 years, the script, book says 14, come Michaelmas. It may seem an odd turn of phrase from Neil there, perhaps, at least to modern ears, but it serves to add an unusual bit of character to the ace reporter, and refers to September the 29th, Fight fans, and used to mark another quarter turned in the financial year, so it does make sense for someone to mark their career by it. Anyway... It prompts a bit of a natter about press coverage of paranormal activity, poltergeists and telekinesis, as well as a bit of business with a mug of tea beverage spotters. And as the old professor looks once again at that old preserved Martian cadaver, throws in a few notions about second sight and the ability to put images into another person's mind, just in case the viewers might think the stuff that follows is actually starting to get a little bit too far-fetched. And, of course, their discussion about the nature of the hull itself, Barbara's admission that she felt things, and how there are vestiges of ancient life on Mars that we all carry within ourselves, is basically the entire plot of the story, explained in full to a secondary character in an almost throwaway little scene in episode 5 of a six-part serial, as the interesting stuff seems to be going on across the room. Exquisitely done. Interestingly it is James Fullerlove who gets to utter the immortal line. So, as far as anybody is, we're the Martians now. And almost nobody bats an eye. Instead, the fiendishly science-fictiony bit of kit is plunked upon the journalist's, sorry, reporter's head, and they run a proper sci-fi moment of a test to see whether they can see the lamp that he can see. And Roney's genius is displayed for all to see as they decide to tinker with the device a little bit more. And so the next day dawns back in the pit, and the Reverend Gilpin is inside the spaceship, looking at the markings of ancient evil and looking at the very spot where Sladdon's unfortunate journey began. Outside the ship, Quatermass is in the full optic encephalograph kit, and with that... And the pit location itself we do wonder whether this is a film insert or that fade out was originally far longer than it now is anyway gilpin is carrying a briefcase you don't see those very often these days do you and explains to full love that he thought he might have to try a bit of exorcism with the old bell book and candle Fuller love is, however, rather dismissive, saying that they'd already tried that back in 1341, which is a tad snarky of him. But it shows that Neil is up to his old tricks of inserting sinister symbolism that the audience would be very familiar with into this tale, just to remind them that disturbing things are still afoot despite all of that rationality they've been seeing. The machine is tested, and the observers can all see the hut that Quatermass is seeing. And bravely, Sladdon is there to tell Quatermass precisely what it was that he did the night before before. Barbara is also there, bravely helping to set up the recording equipment in the place where she was brutally attacked only the night before. They really don't appreciate how much Barbara does for them, these boffins, do they? Quatermass enters the spaceship, the power is cut, and it begins. The twisting wires, the unearthly sounds. Sladden is immediately entranced again and has to be calmed by the Vicar. Nothing is being transmitted through Quatermass, but we notice that Barbara is also stumbling blindly towards the ship with that strange possessed walk that the Enchanted have. And she announces that she can see the Martian vision, and as they struggle to get the device onto her instead, the Vicar has to fight to restrain Sladden, who is starting to panic. And full of love, sees the images from Barbara's mind start to appear on the screen as all hell is breaking loose around them once again, ending with a shrill scream as they finally wrench the device from her head and normality is restored. The Vicar is furious at what they've put these people through, but it is Sladden who announces that it seemed different this time and pointedly mentions all that killing. And then, whilst Potter gets another moment to act all protective of Barbara, Breen arrives unexpectedly having heard that there was some kind of insane Quatermass experiment going on. Well, they always end well, don't they? Ronny meanwhile, is extracting the film of his recording, and it seems that they might have something to show Breen and his war off his buddies. Like I say... Because that was an effects and people-heavy scene, I think it was pre-filmed, because everybody is in place at the war office for a film show very quickly after the fade. Quaid stands at the front, giving a lecture about what they are about to see, a recording of an ancient memory, and he admits, for those of us watching at home, that the equipment it was recorded on is far less subtle than the device in the pit is at storing and projecting images. Whether this is merely an understandably nervous scriptwriter preparing his audience for a scene that might not have been executed all that well, given the limits of special effects technology at the time, is unclear, but once bitten and all that... Although, actually, when we do see the sequence, he really shouldn't have worried, because it's actually superbly executed, even if modern audiences brought up in our CGI-laden cinematic world might find it less than astounding these days. Roney describes what we're about to see as the wild hunt, the phantom ride of witches and devils, of fable, a ritual cleansing of the ancient hives, a race purge, and basically a horrifying demonstration of the ultimate form of a desire for racial purity. Gloves off, Nigel. Tell it like it is. What we do see is less than a minute of those Martian creatures we were introduced to at the end of episode three, only in far greater numbers and basically alive and hopping about like grasshoppers on the dark surface of ancient Mars. Granted, some of the hopperty stuff at the beginning is a little unconvincing, but when the savage brutality of the ethnic cleansing begins and we see close-ups of animated eyes, creatures crawling for their lives and brutal evisceration of and hacking at the living and dying bodies of Martians, all in a kind of whirlwind of frenzied cutting and blurred swoops past the lens, and perhaps surprisingly, given that this is all achieved with puppets and models in the 1950s on a budget that I can't imagine stretched very far at all, it all works astonishingly well. It's the image of those animated eyes that sticks with you, I find, especially when you remember how dead we were told they were when first spotted through that scope at the end of episode three. The shot is used twice, in extreme close-up, and remains genuinely disturbing. Well, it disturbs me, anyway. The minister and his cronies are far less impressed, to be honest, and glibly explain it away as the wild imaginings of an impressionable, overwrought young woman. Nothing ever changes, does it? The gits. I hope people end up bunging rocks at the lot of them. Oh, wait a minute. Let's go back a moment. The minister finds it all most curious, whilst Professor Quatermass does his level best to convince them that this was a memory of ritual slaughter and equates it all to the activities of termites and wasps in their hives. Be careful, Nigel, your influences are showing, although making real-life comparison is a very good move at a point like this, just in case people are sitting at home mocking the ridiculousness of the whole idea. In fact, it's such an effective move that writers of SF Horror have been using the same device ever since, and maybe even earlier. The point that the sequence really serves, however, is the unsettling foretelling of what people are likely to do to each other if the dark powers still held in the pit are unleashed. And let's be honest, the original audience have got a full week ahead of them to dwell on that spicy nugget of thought. Breen and Quatermass are about to lock horns again over the events that occurred in the pit because Breen is still clinging on to that vibration effects theory that caused him to throw up in episode 3 and is merciless about the suggestion that the missile has the power to redirect human energy into forces beyond our control. Should have listened to Captain Potter, those cables didn't tear themselves apart. Meanwhile, the Minister, having made his mind up about the whole thing and not being prepared to change it, They're still around, these types, you know. He's looking for what he believes is a reasonable explanation, a bit of spin, if you like, which he believes is hallucination, or at least a mental image, and that Professor Quatermass is wrong. He isn't, of course, but what can you do with these people? Anyway, with a reminder that they are all in the service of the public, ha! The die is cast, the excavation is going to be opened up to the public, and the inevitable tragedy is suddenly unavoidable as our hero bristles with fury. And so we approach the end of the episode. A taxi pulls up alongside a BBC outside broadcast van circa 1959, and big old BBC cameras I mean shifted into position for the kind of live broadcast you really can't imagine getting the public interested in at all nowadays. Still, there were only two channels back then, so what else could they be watching? There are, of course... Whole articles yet to be written on the fake programmes within programmes that feature in TV drama series that scriptwriters expected that the public might actually watch. But that is, perhaps, for another time. Here we find ourselves in a busy pit with police officers and crowds of journalists, sorry, reporters, and telly folk all milling around alongside our main characters. One of them is Edward Burnham, who would make more of an impression in a couple of Doctor Whos later on, not least as Professor Kettlewell in Robots. Another is the long-time Dalek-in-Chief John Scott Martin, playing a TV cameraman hoping for something interesting to shoot careful what you wish for johnny boy anyway lots of lovely high tension cables are lying around all over the place and there's much talk of firing up the generator and as the wise attentive viewers at home already know that's not a good idea in this particular pit nevertheless all this proceeding is proceeding as planned press releases are being handed out and breen is reading out his prepared statement and batting away irritating questions from journalists sorry reporter james fullerlove and a woman journalist, sorry, reporter, with a fixation with Nazis, who sounds not unlike that Hangman o and woman on the jury in Hancock's half-hour. Breen, of course, does his usual bullying act by trying to belittle Fuller Love in front of the other members of the press pack, but then Quatermass steps forward to slam the final nail in any working relationship he might have possibly had with Breen by asking him whether he's an imbecile or a coward, and suggesting that he's so afraid of something that he prefers to make the thinnest of rationalisations. This, of course, gets Breen bristling as well, although he does give the impression of a man finally cracking under the strain, but they are interrupted by a flash of electricity, and the lights go out as the electrician working inside the spaceship is horribly killed in front of his mate. And, as the horribly burnt body is hastily removed from the darkened pit, and the surviving electrician is helped away by Quatermass and one of the officials, the camera creeps inside the hull and we notice that its surface is starting to pulse and glow and throb in a creepy, almost organic manner, and the soundtrack appears to have developed a noise not unlike a heartbeat. The Martian ship seems to be coming alive, and episode five is all but over as the credits roll over that eerie alien pulsation and fade to black with the credits rolling until... until... The caption at the end tells it all. The next episode will be broadcast on the 26th of January at 8pm. It's called Hob. It's one of the familiar names for the devil, you know. And as episodes go, I promise you that it's utterly fantastic. (laughs)
0: John Stride is a national theatre player, and today's story was adapted for television by
1: Paul Ciani. Thank you once again to Martin.
2: Yes, thank you, Martin. Yes. yes.
1: And part six will be along fairly soon. It
2: will. Yes. Right.
1: We're reaching the end of episode forty nine. Mm-hmm. A couple of things still to come. Yes. But we've got that big old episode fifty coming soon, haven't we? Have. we?
2: What are we going to do for that?
1: What we're gonna do for that? Hmm. I have absolutely no idea. (laughs) Okay, that's reassuring. (laughs) Yeah, we had some ideas and Mm -hmm. plans, but with the current situation it's 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 a little tricky to call. I've got lots of things to choose from. That's all I'm gonna say.
2: That's
1: good. So yeah. Uh Crancourt coming up next, Mm -hmm. and then Paul and Nick will Mm -hmm. look at Tales of the Unexpected. Welcome back to The Crank Court.
2: Hello, Lisa. Hello, Andrew.
1: First thing I wrote down for episode three, I put I put, wigs with tails.
2: Yes, because <laughs> the first shot is from behind. Yeah. There's a lot of interesting shots in this episode, actually. Yeah. I, Cameras all over the place.
1: Yeah, you, you get to see Richard Wilson from behind. Don't you, you Which you don't often get to see. No. So we start off with some Quatermass links. We do. There's Duncan Lamont mm-hmm. as the vet. Yes takes the stand yes so he's he's in the quatermass experiment yes and also in the film version Mm -hmm. of quatermass and the pit
2: okay so
1: proving that everything links it
2: does it's weird the way all these
1: things link up and i've just put camera shots galore
2: yes you're getting over people's shoulders and it's a really it's really quite daring in a way because the cameras then would have been quite heavy so to get them in some of the positions must have been quite difficult.
1: Well, well I, I noted later on, this is a great example of sort of multi-camera VT in yeah. a nutshell, isn't it? <laughs> and they're ringing, well, Voitech is ringing every possible camera angle from the set. Yes. And and ones you yeah. wouldn't even think no. of. No. Now, we should we we said we'd say about Voitech. We and, did, um, yes. Many years ago, um, mm-hmm. Sam Kelly was nice enough to reply to some of he our was. tweets. Because we found a picture of Sam Kelly in... Yeah. as the story to catch a thief from 1973 mm-hmm. yes we sent him a picture and he said good grief the sideburns Yes, they're good <laughs>
2: sideburns yeah
1: this exchange is still searchable on twitter so yes. we said to him do you remember anything about the director who's only credited as Wojtek we were intrigued by the name mm-hmm. and Sam Kelly replied and said Polish I think and a very nice man got a feeling he might have been a designer too I which he was a designer. yeah but he, he, yeah he was,
2: yeah, was a television designer as well
1: designer yeah. and became a director and then went back to design as yes. well um, yes. and I said thanks we've been watching quite a few Court episodes recently and we always cheer when Wojtek's name comes up at the end <laughs> and Sam Kelly replied are these box sets or are they on a channel I'd like to see old pals and I said collections of episodes available for network DVD so yet another actor who didn't know no. their stuff was out there
2: no. I don't know if he ever got round to getting it I don't know whether
1: or... he did I, I, I don't remember hearing but <laughs> hey um but yeah um there's also a bit where uh the the microphone's not over richard wilson at one point because he starts no. speaking yeah. and you can't hear what he's saying until no. the microphone so zooms the over. Has to
2: zoom over there doesn't yeah. it these days, they'd be mic'd with um, radio mics, yeah,
1: wouldn't yeah. they? But, but the, yeah, it's just on a long long pole at the well, moment. Yeah. If you're...
2: It didn't pop in at all during this no, episode. No, You don't see it.
1: Um, <laughs> there are a couple of episodes where you do catch bits of camera yes. and things like that sneaking behind the set. Yeah. Um, you've also got Hal Galilli as the... was he? The transportation... Manager. Manager. And yes. I was going... I, I, I recognise him from somewhere, but... Mm. I couldn't put my finger on it till mm-hmm. I realised. Well, I've seen him in in a few things, but yes. he's the American general in the Tomorrow People War of the Empires.
2: Okay, is that the one with the thing with the googly eyes? The uh,
1: the the the, the, the ha- I'm doing hand motions. Yes. <laughs> the <laughs> sauce on. Is
2: it Roy Skelton or something?
1: Yeah, yeah. You should. I should show you War of the <laughs> Empires one day. That's quite
2: a late one, isn't it?
1: That's the last one. Yeah, yeah. That's the last proper Tomorrow People story. Yeah, okay, let's not get into that. Let's not get into that argument. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he he's he sort of brought on as as a witness, but there's meant to be some bad blood between him and Ronald Rad, yes. isn't there?
2: And it's quite unfair to his character because yeah. uh, Mr. Dealey he
1: sort of smears him he a smears bit, doesn't him, doesn't
2: he? yeah. And obviously, he can't answer that accusation because it's not to do with that.
1: He, he's been accused of stealing engine uh, parts yes. worth four thousand dollars or yes. something. Um, but I love the way he's currently staying at a hotel in Fulchester, yes, uh, which is being paid for by Colonel McKeever.
2: M- yes, well, yeah, you know, he's his witness. Obviously, mm. that would happen. But this
1: episode is is structured very nicely, and it you is. get the last few bits yeah. of evidence in part one, mm-hmm. then you get the adjournment and the all stand yes. bit as we mm-hmm. go into into part two, and we get the summing up, don't we? We do. And yeah.
2: unusually, I would have thought he would have gone for, um, the the judge would have gone for Mr. Dealey first because he's, they're bringing the case, yeah. but he doesn't. He goes for the, you know, uh, Richard Wilson, Jeremy Parsons to yeah. the defendants
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I noted that Richard Wilson says it's an unusual case, but to which yeah. I put, aren't they all? Yes.
2: Yes, there are no normal cases. In, in
1: it's just imaginative writing all the way, isn't it, it with is. Crancourt? Yes. and yeah, some of the bonkers plots that we see. Some of seen. them are
2: crazy. Yeah. Yes.
1: But it, it's a nice um, sort of summing up which says, uh, money or vanity, which is mm. the most important and yes. um, the driving force. Behind these cases, mm-hmm. um, who needed the money? Mm. Well, technically, the colonel needed the money because you found out all this stuff that he's been like sort of in debt and and things. Well, and he lost
2: some money on the stock market. Well, he, he had. And he
1: got he got divorced. He got
2: divorced. Well, we lost money in a company that went into um, liquidation.
1: Yeah, a property company. Proper- wasn't yeah, it?
2: and then he lost money on the stock market, and yes, and then he got divorced. Mm. But as he points out. The money you got from the sale of the bull is nowhere near what would cover the price of his herd and the price of his farm and and the land. So you have to balance out whether the money you got would compensate for the money he might lose by being branded a not very good breeder of cattle.
1: Mm. But civil cases are always harder to call than criminal cases, aren't they? Yeah. Um, with a criminal case, you just have to work out whether they've broken a specific law or not, which is what they're charged with. I don't with.
2: know because there's that there's one okay, one occasion, and I think it's it's not the, because the pilot episode's to do with with medical neglect, mm. but I think it's either the next the first proper episode, of Crown Court, or, or one very early on where somebody's accused of assaulting a policeman mm. who's played by um, Ian Marta, yeah, and it's patently obvious that this character did it, yet they, they um jury find her innocent? Yeah. I was furious. Yeah.
1: That. But I like, I like what uh, the judge says. There are no legal niceties to confuse you. <laughs> and I just put, Mr. Rose is shining through with yes. that line. Because it, it really is Mr. Rose. Is Mr. Rose there. by any other name.
2: Yeah. yeah.
1: So yeah, if, if you like Mr. Rose stuff...
2: You'll, you'll love William Mervyn Crankold. Yeah,
1: it, it really, it really is. Yeah. And you could almost imagine that it's almost the same yeah. character couldn't yeah. you? because it, it's it's so close
2: yeah because we always enjoy it more i think when it's william mervyn yeah as the he's one of the best ones he is for, i mean because you, you also get um uh, john baron yeah he's always grumpy yeah he always looks like he's he's not comfortable yeah. sitting there um and andre venkissingham yeah Who he's okay but he's not as much fun, yeah. and then later on you get sort of Frank Middlemas and Richard Warner and all sorts of different people. So,
1: but yeah, basically, whom do you believe? Yes. And that's the thing. So we get the verdict, and I won't spoil no. how it worked. No. but I, I just I just wrote hubbub at the end. Yes, there's a
2: lot of lot of, and which it, I think is is is
1: it almost feels like ad libbing, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, because yes. yeah, the 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 Colonel sort of. Get, gets a flask out and, mm. and, and all sorts of stuff yeah, goes and, on. There's a um, load of actors' business, yes, isn't there?
2: The other ones are all going off. Yeah, and I, mm. I,
1: I just wonder whether they'd sort of vaguely sketched in what they were going to do. For so both For both verdicts because
2: obviously they don't know what the verdict is going to be they
1: have to plan something for both endings yeah but but how much is left to the actors it did feel very loose it did
2: and i liked that
1: there were so many actors just doing stuff on screen and you almost have to slow it down to see what the hell is going on so i really i really liked that that sort of it's it's not a mess. It's just no. It's just sort of very realistic. It's isn't natural. It? It's yeah. what
2: would happen mm. at the end of a case when everybody's yeah. on off. And are they just trying
1: to get as much in shot as possible yeah. at the end, just sort of move the camera about a bit, mm. you know? But I really enjoyed that.
2: Yeah, um, it's quite fun.
1: quite yeah.
2: Court, particularly those episodes, because as I said in the first part of this, it's 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 not too heavy. Yeah. No. Because there are some of them. There are some of them we still haven't watched because you read the description and go, "Oh, that's going to be." But
1: depressing. sometimes they're not as bad as you think they're going to no, be. Actually, no. we've read some description. And we're like, oh, I'm not sure about yeah, this. I think but... the only
2: one we probably won't ever watch again is the infocide or Murder one. Yeah, which is very depressing. Oh, that that and that very that, dark. that
1: is that is dark for yes. lunchtime, isn't it? Yes, yeah, very yeah.
2: dark. So yeah, that won't be doing. Well, that it's again.
1: dark for nine o'clock. Yes. Some of it. So yeah, <laughs>
2: these days you would not get away with doing that in the daytime. Yeah. Yeah, no, because it's it's yes, it's very... but it is
1: a remarkable series. It is, and although some of the discs are now proving actually hard to find, they it, are. It's a yes. great shame. That,
2: yes, some of them have gone out of print.
1: Yeah, but there are still some discs available, yeah. and mm-hmm. I think it, it's very much the case that if you enjoy actors of this period, yes, you're gonna find some stories with some of your favourite actors you in, in these, and that you that's are. what you go for, yeah. and you just get to see them. And I think they have fun recording them. I think them. They, do.
2: Yeah. they look like they're having fun. Yeah, yeah. Things, I,
1: that does come across. That it's just a few days' work, maybe. Yeah. But and you get, probably didn't pay much. Yeah, but you, you've got some good parts yes. for, for good people. To get their teeth into. Yeah. yeah. So there we are. There's there's the crown court. And mm-hmm. uh, we would say, treat yourself to a few. Yes. yes, you know,
2: track them down. Well, you don't have to track them down. They're available quite freely yeah. but yeah have a look buy one set and see if you like it and if you do you know get some more because they are very addictive yes indeed.
1: okay Right yeah. we like say thank you and mm-hmm. see you later
2: bye bye bye
0: join us again next week when our cameras will be back to see another case in the crown court Rosalind Knight will be back again tomorrow to tell you another story of The Five Children and It by E. Nesbitt.
1: circumstances I trust you will forgive me if I insist insist that you comply with the terms laid down in my letter of the 23rd inst
0: what the hell's the meaning of this can I ask you the same question I happen to be in the middle of dictating a letter I don't care what you're doing is this the
1: sort of letter you send to a friend
5: hello again round the archives listeners it's me Paul Paul Chandler. Paul and um, the Shy yeti, uh, from uh, the Shy Life podcast, uh, whichever, well, call me what you like, no, nothing rude. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, I'm back with um, my colleague, Nick Goodman, yeah. uh, colleague and friend. Aww. to uh, uh, We're going to talk to you about a series that um, is uh, um, beloved by both of us. Um, yes. We've covered it before, uh, but I'm sure Nick will, will uh, tell you a bit more about that. We're, we're going to be talking about tales of the unexpected, but um, we, we haven't necessarily gone for the like the the really really famous first season ones, the Voldar ones from that period. But um, we we both chosen an episode, and um, Nick, Nick, what, what have you? What do you? I know you wanted to speak sort of generally as well as um, specifically. Yeah, yeah your thoughts yeah. about tales
6: tales um was a very big in my life at the beginning of the 80s and well first of all it appeared uh in march 79 um as a sort of saturday night show and uh, it was very heavily publicized because of course with ralda connection and everything and i remember During season one, I I saw only one episode all the way through and that was um, way up to heaven. Uh, They were all rolled on that first season and um, I just remember seeing enough of it. to, uh, the title sequence absolutely captivated me. I, I, I've, I was always, I, you know, it kind of, it was one of those things I kept coming back to the title sequence if nothing else. And I remember wondering, pondering over why it was on so late at night. And I, I remember saying to my mum. You know, sort of, why are they putting it on? Sort of nine o'clock plus, you know, and, and which, when you're ten years old, is quite late. And uh, I remember, she, she do you think, I, I said, do you think it's quite scary? And and they said, well, Mum said, well, it's probably so sort of a little bit disturbing at that time of night. And I thought, because as I've mentioned before, I was probably my own at Their White House, uh, you know, I, I was, I was, my parents were not censored at all. They, they, I don't remember a single program I was banned from watching because it was too frightening. But anyway, I, I'm, you know, it was one of those things you do as a kid where you creep a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more, and you see a little, and I thought, right, way up to heaven. That's the last episode of the season. I'll, I'll sit down and watch it. And, and when it came back in 1980 uh, for season two, I was right. I'm really going to go for it this time, and I was absolutely delighted. And um, ever fascinated with the title sequence. Frustrated, I couldn't uh, pick, um, track down a, a, a single of the of the theme tune because I absolutely love Ron Granger's theme tune. It was one of the last ones he did before he died, and it's a classic. Same as Doctor, like Doctor Who, it's it's a, <laughs> an all time classic. And um, I just I watched all of Series Two, and I think. Even though I've watched all of the DVDs now, there are ones in the American ones I swear I haven't seen. Mm. But I I as far as I remember, I didn't this episode. And um certainly series two cemented my interest in the show. And it for for a long time it rolled rolled alongside or or what, just one step behind Doctor Who as my favourite programme.
5: I remember when it came out on DVD, I, I the box the well the sets were sort of reached as seasons and I think I bought a few of them for your birthday and things yes um well,
6: at get... the time I was delighted it wasn't actually some of the best episodes but uh, at the time I was really excited that it had come out yeah. uh, since then there's been some very excellent um releases on network uh, which have been out for some time and uh, with a strong slant on the fact that they're all Dahl in actual fact the other thing I like really liked about the program apart from the fact they were neat really well made um, half hour thrillers and, and you could you could do that now um mm-hmm. I, I just feel that thrillers go on too long really so you, you can really neat little short stories and i really liked Ra- when it was Raoul Dahl. He, he did introduce a few stories that weren't his own but eventually they for better way faced him out yeah. um but i really i always liked it when Raoul Dahl introduced him because he was a complex character like a, 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 and that came through in his books and uh, he was he was actually it was scary than some of the stories. <laughs> he sat with this roaring fire, twiddling his uh, pencil case. You'll, you'll find this story rather disturbing because I thought sort of wrote it when I saw someone being strangled to death by a, a man. <laughs> 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 he you he, come up with beautifully, beautifully told, beautifully uh, uh, eerie kind of introduction. Like much, much better me. than when I look at the uh, Hitchcock's of birds. I mean, you know, go go away, that old fool. We want to watch the film, and um, you know. But Raald Dale's introduction really boosted it. And I wish he could have introduced every single episode yeah. because he was so good. Um, but, uh, well, yeah, it's, nice. I, it's, I just love the show. I just love it, and uh, even even the, even the, I'd even watch a NAF one. But I'd, so. I've got some of my favourites. But, yeah. um, but
5: yeah. So this time, I I when we knew we were going to record this. I said to you, you pick one and I pick one. And let's talk about yours first. Um, You've picked one from season five. It was shown on the 30th of May, 1982. Well, uh, it's called The Moles. Um, Mm
6: -hmm. I actually saw it, like most of the, 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 the rest of the series, I saw it when it first went out.
0: I shall never forget what you've done for me, Mr Boyle, both in prison and out of it. Talking to you has made me a new man. No, no, no crime does not pay not in the long run it's exactly what i told you. and how right you was mr boyle and how sad that it took me so long to realize how right you was i mean i can't even blame my upbringing my father was an honest man my mother was an honest woman and i broke their arms well there you are it's never too late to men cheers oh cheers well, what are you doing now social science at the open university oh so, so so you're going to be a
6: social worker i was particularly interested because obviously your average i mean i'm, I'm over generalizing i wouldn't love the show if it was this predictable all the time but you know you had a husband wants you to do away with wife has a prettier mistress and everything and, you know and it, and it something goes horribly wrong and there's <laughs> and music and, and we all laugh at the end uh, but with this one it was comic it was comedy it was like a um an ealing uh, sort of caper um i'm not great for, ali's more into ealing capers films than me but the, the sheer quality of the cast i mean they, i remember there was a picture in the tv times with uh, all the kind of like posed of, of um uh Harry H. Corbett is the main guest star mm-hmm. of it. And it's about, uh, he's this chap who's in trouble with the bank and the banker's a very old friend of his. Fulton Mackay mm-hmm. plays the banker uh, and the guy who's in trouble is Harry H. Corbett. Um, I, they're, they're both actors I admire very much. And and there's Bill Owen in, in a part, he did a slap bang in the middle of his Last of the Summer Wine uh, uh, success. I- Joe Gladwin was in Last yeah. of the Summer Wine at the time. And they're all playing the most marvellous uh, comedy parts to the hilt, and it, just for a change, nobody's wife is decapitated, or or nobody, nobody kind of finds, them, you know, finds herself in an awkward situation. It's ju- it's just a nice-natured, uh, daft caper where they're all trying to t- t- tunnel into the next the, the the bank, the Fort MacKay's bank, and uh, they're all so unprepared to be bank robbers. You know, the, the Fort MacKay's is got a heart condition. <laughs> And he just uses the talents of the, of the cast so well. <laughs> and um, most significantly though, and this shows the era it was made because people cared about the actors. Um, there was an announcement at the end of the first broadcast to say that this was Harry H Corbett's final job before he died. Cause he he died two months before. So he recorded this just before he went. Mm. And um, I do remember that that was, a, there was a lot of that at the time. Uh, Tavern Thomas, uh, the same year died. And he that, they showed a still of him after the episode of Heidi High he did, saying this is the last thing be- recorded before he died. And I just, you know, it's, it's got a special place in my heart. Because I'm not a, Because I like, I'm an admirer of Steptoe rather than a fan, but Harry H. Corbett, I think, was quality. And uh, this shows his comedy talents <laughs> very well. Fulton <laughs> Mackay is usually so terribly serious and everything
5: works so well with him. Yeah, you had shown it me before, but the bit that I remember, which made me chuckle, was uh, because Bill Owens playing like a, a reformed criminal, and they think, oh, he'd be good to come and help this. But when yeah. they speak to him, he's kind of like, oh, I'm doing this Open University degree or course, yes. and I'm, I'm doing this, and I'm going to church, and, and yes, then right, Christian take man. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't take long for him to be. Uh, um, when they mention the money, he's like how much (laughs) and and that shows their comedy talent
6: very well because uh harry h corbett in in almost in steptoe mode goes how would you like to earn 20 grand (laughs) what (laughs) it's just a lovely moment and uh yeah it's full of lovely moments and and for once you know you you can relax and enjoy caper and uh, and it's it's just it's it doesn't take itself too seriously um i I, I'm not sure it's actually my favorite episode, but it's it's among my favorites. It's because it's so different and there are so many talented people in it. Um, director was... Peter Hammond, who I mistakenly thought was PJ Hammond of mm. Saffron Steel and Hastel Ones fame for a while, but isn't it? He? But he's he's he directed the the, the there's a Fulton Mackay link there because he directed the first episode of King of the Castle, which featured Fulton Mackay and um and knows seems to know how to get the best out of him. Yeah. Um, but they I- lo- lovely, lovely episode in the middle of a, a, a quite a serious season. But, uh, you, you know, you had the episode. The other one that I, I really like from that season is Stranger in Town with Jerry Jacobi, yeah. almost playing a sort of Colin Bakerish ish doctor's kind of ki- extravagant character. And uh, that turns incredibly sinister at the end. Uh, but uh, it a strong season, I think, a strong season. to
0: 30 grand. a bank. Doing what? Robbing a bank. But what what do you two know about robbing banks? Nothing. But we're willing to learn.
5: Now I, I tend to like the um the sinister ones and um yes. the land the landlady is um one of my yes. favorites. Uh and, well, it's and that, yeah, that one's set in Bath, and uh, um, when uh, I went there recently, we were saying, you know, look out for the landlady. But uh, <laughs> that's, that's not the one I'm going to be talking
6: about. Yeah, going back to landlady, yeah, I must admit, misdeme- you know, don't get me wrong, I, I, I think my preference would always be for the. The sinister one because it's a sinister show, yeah. um, but I just thought this it, it pops up as a nice one to. The other comical one, sorry, I'm just, just going off on the other. The other comical one I adore is um, the the Christmas party. I think mm-hmm. it's called that with uh, Robert Morley in it, um, and he's playing this wonderfully cynical character and again gets some really cracking lines. So, but I, I used to say. Um, it, it's, tales always work best when it was it's sinister and certainly the landlady is one i rate highly as well
5: so the, the one that i've picked I've, I've sort of taken a different um uh, approach in that i was kind of thinking well what one should i go for and as i was going through wikipedia i noted that although roald doll stories were sort of phased out or they were used up um i mean i don't think they never did all of them because he did write quite a few books but but his, his uh, influence on the show definitely sort of faded away but i i yeah. was interested to note that there was one in season nine called the surgeon um which i don't think i've read um and i i, I also tend to be quite interested in shows towards the end of their time you know or looking for the good in yeah, yeah you know people tend to write shows off and quite often with there, there were really good episodes in the later seasons of of, of of shows um so the surgeon was episode three of season nine it was shown on the 15th of january 1988 there'd been a bit of a gap between because season eight was really short like four episodes or something and, yes um, and yes because uh, i think was that
6: the, that the season eight? that's that's the 88 one that's a, the the last one isn't it well, uh,
5: uh, season nine is, is
6: yes the last season one. nine oh right yeah because yeah, there was a lot of um i think it was was it the penultimate number there there were there was just there were uh, it was basically nearly all american there was very 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 few british and I, I i've always wondered going off at a tangent here i've always wondered whether there was a co-op there was an there was a, a swap, you know, kind of like oh, the Americans will do something, and I'll do that, or whether they were imported under the tale of tales of the unexpected as mm. something completely different. That, that, yeah, that, that yeah. I, I've never read anything confirming or denying why there why there was American episodes and why there were British episodes, and whether those American episodes were actually bona fide tales of the unexpected or just incorporated in. I'd love to know one yeah. day because it's it's an interesting setup.
5: Unlike unlike the moles, the surgeon is quite a big cast and the main um the main star is john alderton and weirdly i noticed yeah. that the the episode before um the colonel's lady um stars pauline collins so uh well, they must have been <laughs> they, yeah. must, they must have job been, lot. yes yeah. <laughs> well, you one both one get one free <laughs> but, uh, um,
6: and, and so had um, already had he done two by then he had done the, he did the the vicar one um, Ge- not Genesis. There's another t- uh, Raul Dahl Tales Unexpected. He was in where he- Georgie Porgie. That's right. Mm-hmm. He was in Georgie Porgie with G- Joan Collins. In uh, I-, I think he'd done. He did three or two or three tales.
5: Mm-hmm. Um, I-, I must watch Colonel's Lady because it uh, not only does it have Pauline Collins, but it has Gareth Thomas and Joss Ackland. So
6: a wonderful Joss um, Ackland.
5: But uh, the Surgeon is about a surgeon who is. Uh, Well, it's set in Cambridge, so it's got some good location um, shots. But, uh, um, yeah, John Alden plays a surgeon who's given a diamond by a rich client who he saves the life of. D in the
0: trade means the very best quality white. In some places, it's called a river, mainly in Scandinavia. Now, a layman would call this a blue-white... It doesn't look very blue to me. Oh, but it is. The purest white always contains a trace of blue. Now, think of the blue bags back in the old days in your mother's washing boiler. They made the clothes whiter. Oh, yes, of course. This is a loop, a jeweler's magnifier. A ten times loop. And with this, any imperfections will be revealed. Not modern, though. Definitely not modern. There are too many facets. But I should say that this stone has been in your friend's family for several generations, it's superb. Uh, uh, approximately how many facets would there be on it? Fifty-eight. You know exactly? Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. And what do you imagine it might be worth? Oh, I never imagined in this business, Mr. Sandy. No, 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 of course not. But in round terms. Oh, well, round terms, eh stone this sized, the colour, Oh, in the trade, say, um, £20,000 a carrot, in the shops, double that, £40,000. Shall we see what she weighs in at?
5: Hmm? When he gets it valued, it, it it is extremely valuable, and in short notice, the, he and his wife wonder where they should, um, they should stash it, and they put it in an ice, container of ice in the freezer, um, but one of his younger colleagues um, has has witnessed some of this, and he and a girlfriend break into the uh, break into their house when the, when they're out, um, and they don't find well they don't think they find the diamond, but um, they start drinking John Alderton's booze, and then the girl ends up swallowing the diamond, um, and. Eventually, it comes back to them because it, she has to have an operation and it so it turns up at the surgery again. Yeah. And, um, you can kind of see that it would be a sort of it, it does. I get a feeling it almost would probably. I'd like to read the original, I wonder if it almost worked better as a story because it is yeah. it is very contrived. <laughs> all the is. Like, so, 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 yeah. Uh, so, so the colleague hears and breaks in, and yeah. And just happens that someone just happens to drink it. I mean, I think you it's, notice a diamond there. It was a big diamond. <laughs> um, I mean, you don't. Then-
6: I also also I think with with the Raoul Dautresville, the expensive When you read the original, um, they don't. They they haven't got the twist. The, you know, in some cases they haven't actually got the twisty end. They've got the sinister premise, premise, uh, but they haven't. You know, the the end's been sharpened a bit. Um, it's yeah. like one of them. I won't say which one just in case people want to watch it, but there's one where someone's poisoned at the end. And um, in the book, she, she said, Oh, well, actually, come to think of it, I'm feeling a bit not feeling too well myself. And you couldn't do that. On TV, on the, on the tele version, you see him fall over. You see his butler eat something and fall over. You know, and it's all into, into blurry and you know, kind of. A, so, in actual fact, I think that they'd be, as you say, it'd be interesting to see the read the original of the surgeon because you um, know they probably twisted twisted it a bit uh, yeah. to, to get as it were. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the,
5: because they have to do a silly little twist at the end when it's all resolved and they have got the diamond back and they're in bed um, they're having a drink and celebrating and the wife says so where did you put the, the diamond this time and, and, and he said well needless to say just keep an eye on your, your ice and she kind of makes a choking noise and it kind of they laugh and it's, it's I'm sure that wasn't in the book I'm sure that wasn't yeah. that does seem quite true but it was quite it was a good class, and it was quite it was quite fun but it was very controlled oh Robert it is beautiful it
0: is, isn't it? oh it's lovely
1: what do you think it's
0: worth? Oh, a lot. It's bound to be a look at it. Well, come on. Take a guess how much. Oh, I really have no idea. Well, quite a few hundred. Try it. You mean it's more? It's quite a bit more. Quite a few thousand. Would you be pleased if it were worth quite a few thousand? Well, of course I would. Is it really worth quite a few thousand? Another sip of sherry. Robert, tell me.
6: It is worth very probably five hundred thousand pounds. You're joking. I love the sins always
5: good belly for money. Yes, yeah, yeah. He and Pauline were born a couple of months between each other, so they. Oh. Uh, right. but, uh, well, I noticed that Pauline Collins had a "This Is Your Life" in seventy-two, and he had to wait till seventy-four for his "This Is Your Life."
6: Oh, That's bless! So. <laughs> <laughs> but no, he's he's. A very versatile actor, we don't see enough of them these days.
5: Yeah, I would have thought that 72 and 74 was a bit early for both of them to be having their This Is Your Lives, but there we go. Uh, <gasps> yeah, because bit-
6: I mean, when she did Faceless Ones in 67, she was an up and co- very much yeah. up and coming, she wasn't established.
5: So, this just proves that when X Factor singers and various <laughs> celebrities have their autobiographies within three or four years of uh, of being famous uh, it seems like even in the 70s people were being celebrated yeah. quite early on in their careers
6: so. <laughs> i think mean, oh. 72 barely barely yeah. allows for upstairs downstairs right. doesn't oh. it i mean yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: but
6: uh, no i, I remember the, i do remember the surgeon yeah. um i could i don't i remember him eating i remember somebody swallowing something but I, do, I until i saw the dvd i didn't really i'd forgotten the finer details yeah um that uh, I remember, I remember. I too remember thinking, "Oh, so they haven't exhausted the dolls after all," yeah. and being disappointed that doll himself didn't introduce yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I will I say that, they did all that, all that in recording blocks. yeah
5: I will say that um um maybe season nine, but the lady doing the dancing at the start, she 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 looks like she's been preserved remarkably well, she, for, she's been dancing there for for nine seasons.
6: And she
1: doesn't
5: look. <laughs> <laughs> a day older
6: than <laughs> again i i'm 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 not unknown to be uh, enthusiastic about the female figure um uh, but i mean um i don't yeah I, it was just you know i'm just as interested in the the funny little goblins and things like that at uh the in the title it was just a really imaginative interesting title sequence mm-hmm. that I think if it had gone off a bit fantastically because the, the the essence of tales of the unexpected was always it was ordinary people in extraordinary yeah. situations, which is the also could also describe armchair thriller. But uh, I just loved all that sort of thing, and, and uh, I, I was hooked. Every every year I was hooked. Um, I did think it it probably did taper out a bit after maybe after season five it, it, it didn't sort of it, it, there weren't so many good episodes coming in
5: um, I, um, and I, I, when I was watching the moles and, and the surgeon uh, Dealey the cat was here and I, I was hoping that he was I told him you're going to have to dance dance like the lady in the title <laughs> that, um, one of the things that you know I like is uh, series that run long time um, yes. I, I like how the title sequences change and I'm always rather disappointed when they remain the same Uh, And and of course, it is a really good title sequence, but I still would have liked them to have done different versions of it or somehow changed it in nine seasons.
6: They kind of tweaked it a bit because um, the first, if it, I've been, I've been just. Can you remember having seen it this morning? Whether the beginning of it to have Raoul Dahl's Tales of the Unexpected, um, or no, just Tales of no, no. the Unexpected. Because of course they knocked off yeah. the Raoul Dahl bit where once yeah. they stopped doing Raldal. Yeah. And yeah. I remember because he did he did introduce, because you mentioned we were talking earlier about the fly paper, which is a series two episode. Yeah. And by that point, I think it was still called Raoul Dahl's Tales of the Unexpected. He was introducing other people's yeah. stories yeah. as well, yeah. which I li- I liked. I, I think he should it was almost as if I I like that because it was almost as if he was giving you his blessing, mm-hmm. or, or giving them giving them his blessing. Yeah. So if you watch it, yeah, yeah they'll be that should be. it's going to be all I, right. I noticed. Um,
5: uh, I'm a, I'm a fan of uh, Ruth Rendell. I noticed there's at least one Ruth Rendell story that's adapted. So I'm going to have to um, keep an eye out for that one. There's probably more than one to be honest. But uh, I, I was um, wondering, do you remember we have we have covered one other episode? Of tales before, and that was in memory of someone. Do you remember, remember us doing that?
6: Oh, oh, of course, my lady loved my dove. Yes, yeah, we, yes. We, uh, yeah that's the one we want. Yes, yeah, so I, it, I remember again, that's a fun one, uh, but it's got the, it's what's nice about it is it's, it's fun, but it's it's got the spite of, um, with the, that that Raoul Dahl always got into his, his stories. Uh, so Lady Stretch, it was always Lady Stretch and Chamber were a great combination, great lines, and yeah, they yeah, I, re, I do remember reviewing that. I just again, it's one of my favourites because it, it's one of my favourites of the non sinister ones. Yeah. Um, yeah. But again, the actual idea is 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 in a way sinister, but yeah. um, it's it's you know it's having fun with it, yeah. and uh, yeah, good, good, well,
5: good stuff. Um, well, listeners, I think it's time for us to go but uh we've enjoyed looking at tales again maybe we'll do this again or maybe one of the other contributors will will uh, look at tales but uh plenty to plenty to look at anyway and don't always go for the really famous ones they're great but there are other little gems literally hidden away if you swallow them absolutely (laughs) (laughs) i have to say uh, on a final
6: note an end twist if you like. with the, what watching I, it did take me a little while to get i think it's the penultimate season which has so many american episodes in and i i must admit i there was an american episode about a hitchhiker not the hitchhiker which was the season 2 one but um uh, about a serial killer and and that was i really enjoyed that one that was, i didn't and i didn't see the twist coming which was nice <laughs> Yeah. I probably should have done because the, yeah. you know, uh, it's probably bloody obvious if <laughs> some people, yeah. but I kind of I didn't yeah. see it coming. So uh, yeah. I, I, yeah, that's that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. I'm going watch that sometime with
5: you. Yeah. Okay, Right, we've got to go. And we'll be back again soon. Bye bye for now. Okay. Bye. Oh,
0: darling. Oh, oh, aren't you clever? Oh, after all these years, oh, you really do deserve it. Oh, <laughs>
1: That was episode 49 of Round the Archives.
2: Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Martin Holmes, Toppy Smelly, Paul Chandler and Nick Goodman.
1: On the musical side, you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler.
2: The script for Crown Court, the most expensive steak in the world, was by David Fisher.
1: And the producer was Quentin Lawrence. Coming in episode 50 of Round the Archives.